I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. There's a fascinating documentary that will premiere this Friday night on CBC's The Nature of Things, How the Wild Things Sleep looks at uh, sleep as researchers study the sleeping habits of orangutans, honeybees, elephants, fur seals, and Canadian geese. The documentary looks at how their experiences might be instructive as to our own, humans, that is. Jeff Dion joins me now. He's one of the writers of the film, and we'll talk about what's in the film, how creatures like seals can uh, keep one half of their brains awake at all times while sleeping in water, while Canadian geese do the same, flying hundreds of uh, kilometers a day even while sleeping. We all lose some function when we don't sleep enough, and in the film we see uh, the same happens to orangutans and bees, Yet elephants seem to have no effect on their uh, cognitive abilities if they have less sleep. The film is produced by uh, Telltale Productions and was shot by world-class production teams in Canada, the United States, Germany, South Africa, and Japan. I'll ask Jeff about how the film was made, about some of the striking uh, shots in it, and what it's like to write for the film's narrator, David Suzuki, the longtime presenter, of the nature of things. Jeff Dion is an award-winning veteran of television and event production with experience as a journalist, producer, writer, director, and executive producer. In his 25-year-plus career with the CBC, his work was recognized with uh, 12 Gemini Awards, an international Emmy nomination, and countless other journalism and news awards. In 2001, he produced and directed Rick Mercer's Talking to Americans, which is the highest-rated comedy special in the history of CBC television. How the Wild Things Sleep premieres this Friday night, the 11th of March, at 9 p.m., 9.30 in Newfoundland, on CBC and CBC Gem. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Jeff Dion. Mr. Dion, good morning. Good morning, Joe. How are you today? Pretty good yourself. I'm excellent. I slept well. Thank you. I was gonna, that was the first question I was going to ask, is how much <laughs> sleep you got last night. I, did. I, got, uh, I got about seven hours, Yeah. which is one less than I like. Uh-huh. So I have a small sleep deficit, but I can make it up with a quick nap this afternoon. That's the thing. I've I've had about um, I'm trying to think now, about four or five hours, and I uh, got up to do this, and I plan on on catching a nap in a bit. Uh, are we the only species that, that that seem to say do that and and, and catch up with with our sleep? And, and does that actually work? Yeah, it does. Um, there's a word for it. Homeostasis. It's called. Mm. Um, yeah, most species uh, seem to need to catch up on lost sleep. Um, but, and different, you know, within the human species, we different people require different amounts of sleep, as you know. I mean, we both have friends, I'm sure, who can get by with four or five hours a night. Yeah. I, I'm not one of them. I, I need eight, uh, and I have to catch up if I don't, if I don't get them. Um, and most species seem to... Um, suffer ill effects if they're deprived of sleep. But interestingly, not all species. In the, in the documentary, um, you know, we, we, uh, we talked to a, a sleep expert, or he's actually an elephant expert, uh-huh. yeah. and he studies elephants, and he concludes, based on years of observation, that elephants do not need to catch up on lost sleep. They sometimes they go in complete nights without sleep because they're being preyed upon by lions or whatever, and so they stay on the move, and they do not need to catch up. So it's uh, it's, a, it's a common phenomenon that we need to catch up on sleep, but it's not universal. 
So when it comes to elephants, as we see in the movie, um, they can they can go with with small amounts of sleep, and then if that's say interrupted or it's not good sleep, they seem to function fine. So they've been able to test the the the, the uh, I guess the the brain function doesn't diminish because of a lack of sleep. Yeah. Um... The thing is that different species have adapted sleep for their own particular needs. Mm. And in the case of elephants, uh, it's just a fact of their life that they are often kept on the move by other animal species around them in, you know, in the wild in Africa. So that's what they've adapted. Um, domesticated cats, on the other hand, have very few threats in mm. their lives. And so they're able to sleep for 18 hours a day. The, the, the thing is that sleep manifests itself very differently in different species, and that's what this documentary, you know, tries to explain. There, there is some fundamental purpose for sleep, um, but we're not exactly sure what it is because, it's so, because it manifests itself so differently in different species. The, the question that this documentary tries to address is not, you know, how do we sleep? It's why we sleep. Why did Mother Nature wire living creatures to sleep when inherently, while we're asleep, we're vulnerable mm. to predation? Um, so sleep has to be more important than being eaten or else we wouldn't do it. So, um, so that's, that's, that's the kind of the nut yeah. puzzle. That's the conundrum, the riddle that sleep scientists are, are trying to uh, discover so in in the film we see bees and we see uh, an orangutan um sort of uh, being tested um in in terms of of the the quality of sleep being interrupted uh, when they should be sleeping and then testing their their cognitive abilities i guess afterwards or or cognitive abilities are viewed um are they species that that work to get uh, or that try to get catch uh, try to catch up with sleep if 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 it's diminished say they are, yeah. and and uh, in the case of bees, uh, sleep is absolutely a, a critical part of their life cycle. Um, bees, as you know, as many of your listeners will know, are able to communicate with each other within the hive, um, the sources of food, nearby sources of food, and they do this um, with something called a waggle dance, which is really pretty fascinating to watch. And other bees gather around, and the, these are the, the gatherer bees, the females, and, and the, uh, a bee that has found a food source is able to communicate the direction and the distance from the hive of that food source. It's just much more efficient rather than every bee going out on its own trying to figure out where the food is. One bee finds it and then tells all the others. And they do this with the waggle dance. So in the documentary, there's a fascinating guy called Dr. Barrett Klein. Yeah, yeah. Completely entertaining guy. He is, should, yeah. have his, should have his own TV show, in my opinion. Um, and he uh, deprives bees of sleep in his observation hive through this ingenious mechanical device that he's created where he puts tiny magnets on mm. the back of some identified bees. And he deprives them of sleep by passing magnets over their backs on a regular basis, not to hurt them, but just to jostle them and keep them awake. And then, because they have painted markings on their backs, he's able to look at the effectiveness of their waggle dance after a night of deprived sleep. And it turns out, and he's proved this conclusively, that the waggle dances are much less precise. And the other bees, you know, once they figure that out, they stop 
listening to them yeah. or watching that waggle dance and they go to other bees. So that's one way that we can test uh, the importance and the value of sleep is to, to deprive creatures of sleep and see what happens after that. And, you know, you and I, if we're deprived of sleep, you know, if we have a sleepless night in the airport or whatever, you know, we have brain fog yeah. and we, we have to, we have to uh, recover. Um, same with bees. With orangutans, um, the researchers don't deprive the orangutans of sleep as much as they give them comfortable bedding material. And orangutans are unique in the great species, in the great ape species, in that they really make beds in the wild. They yeah. make beds. And in the zoo setting, they go about making the most comfortable bed they can. And so what the researcher does in the case of the orangutans is provide them with bedding materials. The more bedding materials the orangutan takes, the better the sleep they get. Mm. And then the better they perform the next day on these cognitive tests uh, where they put the orangutans in front of video screens and make them play simple cognition games like tic-tac-toe or, you know, identify things by name. And uh, they've absolutely proved conclusively that a better night's sleep improves the cognitive ability of the orangutan. It's just it's just fun to see in the film how uh, uh, they, they go about making their beds, and if it's not perfect, and just like like us with our pillows and our covers of the sort, um, they keep it's at it, true. don't they? It's true. Well, there's one there's one orangutan. It, the, the the study where this is done is is done by a guy called David Sampson from the University of Toronto, and he's done a lot of work with this orangutan. Uh, troop in the zoo in Indianapolis, in Indiana, and he knows them all by name, and he talks about AZ, and he said, you know, if I could have one ape in the world make my bed, it would be AZ, <laughs> because AZ makes a perfectly comfortable bed, and, you know, he'll spend 20 minutes, half an hour making a bed, and if there's one piece of straw sticking in his back, he'll yeah. start again, and he'll just make <laughs> a perfect bed. It is, it is fun to watch. The, the, the images in, in the piece are, are quite striking. I mean, they're beautiful places, natural and otherwise, that, that we see in uh, the piece. Uh, images of the other species is fascinating as well. I mean, this is as close as, you know, a lot of us will get to say bee, or want to get close to bees or elephants and the sort. <laughs> Um, how does it work for with you as a, as, as a writer on on the film? Do you um, are you involved, say, from the beginning? Do you, do you direct what shots are needed, say, for the script? Normally, I would. Um, yeah, I get hired as a writer director, and um, you know, I I don't do all the research, but mm-hmm. I work with a researcher, and then we make our choices about which species we're going to cover. And then the shoots are arranged, and off we go with the camera crew, myself and a camera crew and a production manager to different places yeah. around the world, because I'm lucky like that I get to travel. Uh-huh. This particular film is a bit of an enigma in that it had to be made uh, during COVID. Mm. And for a while, it looked like this film was going to be impossible to make. Um, you know, it wasn't possible to travel from Canada to the various locations in this film, which include South Africa and the United States and uh, Germany, um, but in a way, this this documentary is testimony to the persistence and the creativity of people in the film and television industry. In that, we got it done, and the way we got it done was by engaging local camera crews mm. in all of the different locations, so that very little travel was involved. Um, so, in Indiana, for instance, with 
the with the orangutans. That was that was a camera crew from nearby, you know, a nearby community uh-huh. that shot that. Same in South Africa. That was a that was a South African crew that shot the elephants. Um, so I was deprived <laughs> of my opportunity to go to South Africa to observe elephants. Boo hoo. Uh, woe is me, but you know everybody was put out in many ways by COVID. But that's what happened to this film. Nobody could travel anywhere, so um, it's kind of a miracle that this film got made and it turned out uh, as successfully as it did. But um, yeah, to answer your question, normally I would get involved and I would do all the travel and I would direct these pieces. But in this case, that was not able. Yeah. This is a German-Canadian co-production, uh-huh. and uh, the German producers arranged some of the shoots, and the Canadian producer here in Halifax um, uh, produced uh, some of the shoots, and then we all shared all the material, and my job was to take all the material and, and write a version for the CBC's Nature of Things, uh-huh. um, narrated by David Suzuki. So, so that was my role, really. I didn't come into play... I was involved in some of the initial research, and I was involved. I wrote the piece at the end, but the, the fun stuff in the middle, the travel and the meeting of the subjects, I wasn't able to, to do. In yeah, this case. I, I was nosy enough to wonder if um, when this was shot, and um, I had a sense that it, possibly during COVID, because in, in the South Africa part, when they're outfitting the elephants with um, the, the various tracking devices, um, I see some people with masks, but then I was thinking to myself as, as I was watching that, um, maybe they've got masks on because it's an actual surgical procedure that they're doing. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that is the case. Yeah. I, th- I think that because they were making an incision in the elephant's trunk yeah. to insert a gyroscope uh-huh. and a tracking device, that, uh, that they would have worn masks anyway. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, this, this film was shot entirely during the time of COVID. Really? Um, and with all of the COVID protocols that were in existence at each location being observed. I see. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a it was a thing and the film took much longer to make as a result and and probably went over budget, although that's the producer's purview, not mine. So. But um, yeah. anyway, it, it got made and it was got made by, you know, really effective, competent people all around the world. So the, the the film also looks like loons and seals, and and what's fascinating about them is that they're only using um, during sleep, I should say, they're only using half their brain. Um, we we tend to, to to say that you know if if we're doing something ourselves and and uh, as humans, I should say, that if um, we're not say good at it, only half our brain is working, if you will. Um, <laughs> but in in their case, that's actually um, what what's happening with them, right? Yeah. Like, um, as we were saying earlier, you know, each species has evolved sleep to suit their own individual purposes. And in the case of birds, um, we studied, uh, we were going to do frigate birds who are able to stay aloft for weeks uh-huh. on end. Um, but in, in the end, we ended up doing Canada geese um, in Germany mm-hmm. and uh, fur seals in South Africa. And what's common to those species is that they have evolved the ability to engage in what's called unihemispheric sleep. And what that means is they can sleep with half a brain, as you said, and while, while the other half stays awake. And then they switch between the hemispheres of the brain. And the reason they do that is to protect themselves against predation. Mm. So, for instance, if, you, if, we were, if you were a fur seal, which you're not, but, uh, and you were in the, South, in, in, in the Indian Ocean uh, or, or off the coast of South Africa, um, you spend a lot of time in the water. 
and uh, you are subject to predation by sharks. Yeah. So what fur seals have adapted the ability to do is they sleep on their side with one flipper up in the air. It's called the sailboat position. The, the part of the brain that is pointing, the eye rather, that's pointing down into the ocean is vigilant, looking out for danger, and the part of the brain that is asleep, uh, that eye is pointing up into the sky. Um, it's a remarkable adaptation, an evolutionary adaptation, and, and birds do it, enabling them to spend incredible amounts of time aloft in the air, yeah. um, and also to sleep uh, while at the same time being vigilant against uh, predators it's, uh, it's a remarkable sleep adaptation i wish i could do it yeah exactly yeah the the um, the, the birds for example as we see them in, in a park well we see them all the time you know the, the they're they're they look like they're sleeping and then the minute that that they hear something they, they all disperse yeah um and um what was fascinating as i was watching the the, the piece was that um they sleep with one eye open, and, and um, that's just remarkable. I wish I could do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will, we've all done it in meetings, I'm sure. Sure, yeah. But we, but we get busted. You know, we all get caught out of that because we don't remember anything that happened. I'd love yeah, to so w- watch movies while, have, while asleep, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, it is a remarkable adaptation of sleep that these particular species have evolved because it suits their purposes, just like elephants hardly need any sleep you yeah. know we you know in, in humans we talk about um you know sleep being indispensable for the function of memory you know uh-huh. when, when we're asleep that's when we do our our brain does its filing system when we file away memories and we talk about elephants you know elephants memory being you know something that it's incredibly effective at remembering everything so you'd think that elephants would need lots of sleep in order to develop an elephant's memory but the converse is true elephants can go days nights without any sleep at all and what's interesting about them is they don't appear to need to catch up on lost sleep and they don't suffer brain fog Mm. as you or i do after a sleepless night on an airplane or in an airport or driving somewhere so so what do these these uh, academics these scientists tell us uh, in terms of, of why it's important to look at other species um, and what that, say, informs about our understanding for, for humans as, as to what sleep is all about, say. Yeah, that, that's, that's well put. That's, that's a good question. I mean, the reason that scientists around the world are spending so much time studying how other species sleep is because there's a payoff, or there will be a payoff for humankind. The more we understand about sleep, um, the better able we are to, to treat um, sleep disorders. Um, you know, sleep, the study of sleep really kind of came into fruition in the mid sort of 20th century in 1950, 1960. Mm-hmm. People started, you know, once we developed electroencephalographs and we can do ECGs and we could put electrodes on the brains of people, we started to really study sleep in humans. And then we branched out, and anything that we could put an electrode on, we could study the sleep of that species too. You know, where the rapid eye movement, sleep, and the, and the different cycles that we all go through. But you can't put the electrodes on a brain of a bee, or a stick insect, mm-hmm. or an ant, or or a worm, or uh, you know, there's, there's lots of species who sleep, who engage in sleep, that we can't really study in that traditional way. So scientists had to get really creative about the ways that it studies sleep in, say, insects. And and the big 
question, the big riddle is not is not so much how we sleep and how sleep differs in different species. It's why we sleep. Why did Mother Nature wire all living creatures to sleep? And we're talking about very simple organisms. Let's take a hydra. Um, you know, a hydra has no brain, yeah. and yet it, it exhibits behavior that looks a lot like sleep. Well, why is that? And, the, and part of the answer is maybe that before creatures evolved brains, and we're talking billions of years ago now in, in evolutionary terms, before creatures had brains, they had digestive systems, they had guts. So maybe sleep originated as a function of digestion. We don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, but that's what science is trying to figure out. What, why, why do all living creatures sleep? Why, why is it such an essential part? And as far as we know, all living creatures sleep. In fact, even you know, trees right. exhibit yeah. behavior that looks like it looks like sleep. But um, you know, we have to stop thinking of sleep as in the conventional sense of you know, creatures lying down, putting their heads at rest, and shutting their eyes. Sleep doesn't necessarily look like that. It looks like different things in different in different species. And when you mentioned uh, wanting to get eight hours uh, a night, that's like a third of our life. And and for for a lot of us that that, um, uh, view sleep as as a waste of time, if you will, that's something that we need to get away from, don't we? Well, I don't think, you know, Mother Nature would have evolved humans to sleep eight hours a night if it wasn't really essential for our purposes. If it wasn't if it wasn't essential for our cognitive abilities as you know homo sapiens we wouldn't be doing it you know if it wasn't essential for small mammals to get sleep they probably wouldn't do it because they're going to get eaten while they're asleep you know yeah. so there's obviously some really foundational fundamental reason that creatures uh, sleep and in the case of humans yeah you're right you know a third of our life we can spend asleep um not many scientists would argue that that's a waste of time because yeah, that sleep yeah. is essential to our. It's you know the reason that you and I can have this conversation is because we had sufficient sleep, and you know you can remember my name and I can remember yours and we can both put together coherent sentences. But if if I kept you awake or conversely if you kept me awake for three or four nights running, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Right. Um, another thing I was wondering about Jeff as I was watching the the, the piece. Um, David Suzuki is its narrator. Um, it's yep. a Nature of Things documentary. Uh, it'll air uh, on on the Nature of Things on the CBC. Um, what is it like to write for him? Because his is a voice that a lot of us recognize, have, have watched over the years, say, listened to on the radio, on television, and the sort. Of, does, does he get involved much with with how the script sounds? He gets involved at the voiceover stage. Mm. So the piece gets uh, written and put together um, under the supervision of the CBC executives who work for the nature of things. So we send them a rough cut and we send them a fine cut and we, we send them an annotated script so that they can verify everything that's said in the piece. It's got some kind of scientific foundational backing to it that we're not just making stuff up. So David Suzuki gets involved at the voiceover recording stage, which is done in Vancouver. Uh-huh. Uh, because David lives uh, on one of the Gulf Islands. So yeah. I'm not quite sure which one. Um, so David comes into a sound studio in Vancouver, and then we're linked by Zoom or by phone, depending on the day, 
and uh, and then David has received the piece uh, a week before, so he's had a chance to look at it with my version of the script in it. And when I write, uh, I try and have the voice of the the razor in my head. Yeah. And uh, and so if I was writing for David Attenborough, it might sound a bit different. You know, it might be all the species <laughs> in the African savanna, yeah. none is more remarkable than the elephant. And, you know, you have the voice of the narrator in your mind, and uh, that's true for me or anyone else that's writing for David Suzuki. Um, David has a particular narrative style. He's been doing it a long time. He's mm -hmm. extremely good at it. But more than anything else, he's an incredibly knowledgeable scientist. And he's engaged in this piece. Like, he really enjoyed this piece. He was fascinated with the B segment. Yeah. Um, and, and David's position is that, you know, we don't do enough documentaries about the marvels of the insect world. Mm. David Suzuki spent years working as a geneticist with fruit flies. Right, yeah. So that's a particular interest to him. Um, so most of the time, you know, David will fit his version of the script, uh, of, of the narration, into the holes that exist in the soundtrack for the narration. And occasionally... Uh, he'll he'll raise a question, and they're always really good questions. I'll bet, yeah. And and he'll say, "I don't quite understand what you're getting at here. What are, what are you actually trying to say here?" And you know, he he'll put you on the spot, and he'll make the script better because he's asking a good question. He'll ask a question, not that a scientist would be asking necessarily, but that but that a viewer might ask. Mm. Um, so he he won't just read what's on the page. Uh, if it doesn't make sense to him, he'll say, "I'm not. I don't get what you're trying to say here. What is it? What are you trying to say?" And then you have a conversation about it, and he'll say, "Well, what if we said it this way?" Uh, and you, there'll be a you know a, a negotiation, um, the objective of which is to arrive at a, a better written sentence so that the meaning is clearer. So you know he's a, he's a pleasure to work with, and he knows his onions. You know he knows of what he speaks. He's done thousands episodes of the natures of things so yeah. you know anyone who would write a script that david suzuki uh is uh is going to their rate had better put their ducks or their canada geese in <laughs> order you know i i had uh, rick mercer on uh this past fall when his book came out and oh, yeah. one of the things we talked about was talking to americans oh, yeah. um which is uh it's hard to believe it's 20 years ago now that uh over 20 years ago now that we, that we yeah. saw that um yeah. when um you were all were making that um yeah. how often was it that that uh folks behind the camera rick himself broke out laughing in the middle of talking to somebody uh rick never did <laughs> rick never did um, I used to hide behind a reflector, mm. and the, and the cameraman uh, is always sort of uh, wincing and suppressing giggles behind the viewfinder of the camera. Um, I don't think we ever sort of burst out laughing ever. We never gave the jig, uh, you know. We never gave the game away by laughing, but we sure did when people walked away. We would look at each other and shake our heads. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe that they actually said that. Um, talking to Americans was just fun to do. Yeah, that's probably in my professional career. That's one of the most enjoyable gigs I ever had. Um, it was kind of easy. It was a bit like fish in a barrel. 
You know, uh, we'd go to a place like Chicago. We'd set up on Michigan Avenue. We would shoot over the lunch hour, and we'd be done by, you know, 1.30, and then we'd go to a baseball game. Yeah. I mean, it was really not very difficult. People, the question that I most get asked about talking to Americans is that you must really edit that to make them look <laughs> uninformed. Yeah. And the honest truth is that it was very, very easy to gather that material. And it was not achieved by sleight of hand in the edit suite. Yeah. Um, what you see is what we got. And it was uh, huge fun. Well, were there were there uh, a lot of people who were, were shot and then refused to say consent to their being aired, say, or being shown? No, um, uh, I, I mean I'm telling tales out of school here now, but um, I hope I don't get into trouble for saying this. We never actually got people to sign waivers. I see. We we just interviewed. You know, we said hi. Have you, you know, have you got a minute for Canadian television? Which I see. Is a good opener yeah, yeah. because. You know, people didn't want to talk to TV news crews, you know, doing streeters. But if you said, you know, you were from Canada, they'd be interested. And because Americans are generally hospitable and nice people, they mm -hmm. would stop and say, Canada, oh, yeah, sure. What do you got? And then you'd ask them the question. And then because they wanted to appear convivial and cooperative, they'd give you an answer. And they'd often give you the answer that they thought you wanted to hear which was unfortunately usually um, terribly uninformed and dumb and 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 funny. Um, rarely did we get busted. Mm. Um, I think there were maybe, in all of the segments that we shot, I think there were maybe, I'm going to say I could count on one hand the number of times that people said, I don't believe this. Mm. You're, you're kidding me, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of them was in Florida, where we we were in uh, we were in Miami, and we were we were asking people if um, if it would be okay if Canada became uh, part of the American U.S. Navy um, because we didn't have any ships, but we wanted to have a navy, but we didn't have any <laughs> ships because we didn't have any access to the ocean. <laughs> and you know, we did the standard thing happen. People said, "Oh yeah, sure, you can be part of our navy. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. love to have you guys." And then there was one guy who listened and then just deadpanned and looked at us and said, you guys don't have access to the ocean? <laughs> and Rick said, yeah, no, we, we don't. And he said, do the people in Halifax know that? <laughs> and we just busted, you know, we just we just broke up laughing. Yeah. And he said, yeah, look, I've been to Halifax, you know, I know. <laughs> what are you guys doing here? Yeah. That almost never happened. Yeah, yeah, you know, almost almost never happened. And it and the trick in talking to Americans as the show as the series went on became, you know, how uh, making the questions more and more outrageous and more and more unbelievable. And we'd be writing them on the plane often on the way to the destination, and we'd go, they'll never, like, well, they'll never believe that Canada has a twenty-five hour clock. <laughs> and they're like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> they, but they did. Yeah. Oh yeah, you guys should uh, you guys should convert to U.S. time. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it, it was fun. It, it, the thing I was just thinking about, Jeff, was that um, uh, we, when you mentioned that that um, you know Americans generally are convivial, um, it would probably be a different sort of film or, or piece today, twenty years later, wouldn't it? I mean, in so many different ways. Yeah, I, I don't think it'd actually be doable today. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, an, it was an comparatively innocent time when we did that 
uh, talking to Americans. This is, you know, it was 22 years ago now, 23, 24 years ago wow. when we started doing it. And it was a different generation. And then since, you know, since we've done Talking to Americans, and I'm not claiming credit for, for these next examples, but, you know, the, uh, Jay Leno did Jaywalking. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of TV shows. You know, Punked is another example. People are just much more wary now of media than they used to be. We presented, like, a news crew. There was, you know, a presentable-looking reporter in a suit. That was Rick. Uh, there was a professional camera guy there with what was obviously a professional beta cam on his shoulder, and there was me, a producer with a clipboard. And we looked every inch, the news crew, and people were sort of deferential to news crews back then in a way that they're not now. Mm. I mean, it, you know, you watch what happened you know, in, in Ottawa, sure. at the, you know, the truckers' convoy. People scream obscenities now at television news crews. It's, it's sad. And it shouldn't be that way, but um, there's there's just distrust of of media generally. Um, so I, I don't think we'd uh, I don't think we'd be a get away with it now. I, and you know, and Rick never wanted to repeat that trick anyway. Yeah. I'm not sure if you got into that with him, but it was a it was a joke that worked really well at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, after 9/11, um, there was no appetite to do any more of it. And uh, Rick's never wanted to go back and do it again just because we did that joke. And it was a good joke while it lasted, but it's done. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Jeff, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Um, um, I appreciate your time, and and, um, I've already seen the thing on on, uh, for for the nature of things, but I'll watch it again on the 11th because there was just so many fascinating things and so many wonderful images. Uh, Congratulations on it, and and good luck with it. I'm very pleased to... uh, to hear that and thanks a lot Joe for your time and for your interest and for telling people about it we appreciate it How the Wild Things Sleep debuts uh, this Friday night the 11th of March at 9pm uh, 9.30 in Newfoundland on CBC and CBC Gem uh, it is uh, part of uh, CBC's The Nature of Things Jeff Dion joined me on the line from Halifax in Vancouver I'm Joseph Planto <laughs>